This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pandemic Planet, the podcast from the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. I'm Catherine Bliss, a senior fellow at CSIS, and I'm joined today by Bruce Gellin, president of global immunizations at the Sabin Vaccine Institute in Washington, D.C. At Sabin, Bruce oversees efforts to support lower and middle income countries in ensuring vaccine access, program implementation and financing, among other initiatives. We're here today to talk about the state of routine immunizations globally, how countries are doing in distributing or preparing to distribute COVID-19 vaccines, and opportunities for improved United States support for global immunization programs in the years ahead. So Bruce, welcome to Pandemic Planet. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our talk. So it's April, which means another World Immunization Week is coming up at the end of this month. And the theme this year is vaccines bring us closer. And that certainly seems like an apt slogan to grab people's attention after more than a year of COVID-19 and pandemic-mandated masks and social distancing. So we'll get to COVID-19 vaccines in a minute. But first, I want to start out by asking you how you came to focus your career on global vaccine issues. You're an infectious diseases physician and epidemiologist by training with experience in the United States government, as well as private foundations and institutes. So what is it about vaccines and immunizations that captured and continues to capture your attention? Well, thanks. Actually, it's an interesting question because this is like many of these things. It's only when you look back that you see where this all came from. And there wasn't one thing, but there were a few things that, in retrospect, was part of that convergence. I'll start in medical school. I was in medical school in New York City. Infectious diseases was a powerful program. And it was early days of AIDS. But we also had people coming from everywhere with exotic tropical diseases. So you had a, a sort of a vicarious sense of global health, if you will. I'll flash forward. I took a year off of medical school as a loose scholar in the Philippines, which gave me a firsthand look at a healthcare system in a developing country to see the logistics of delivering health, problems delivering health to the poor, and realizing if you could prevent many of these things, you would make much more progress. Flash forward when I was an internal medicine resident in Vanderbilt, I remember distinctly these two successive nights on call. We had two patients that came in from the community with meningococcal meningitis. And I remember as the second patient was coming in on that second night, looking out over Nashville and, and wondering, you know, what's going on out there? Well, it turns out that these were different strains, so there wasn't an outbreak. But that's sort of the vignette that I think of that then launched me into public health and epidemiology. So you won't be surprised that I went to the CDC afterwards I worked in a group called the Meningitis and Special Pathogens at a time when the first Haemophilus influenza vaccine was just being deployed. So I had a chance to watch the introduction of a vaccine and a disease essentially disappear from what was sort of the leading childhood infection 
the thing that trained all pediatricians in managing meningitis to a disease that now is reportable. So then those are some of those strands. I then had another opportunity with the Rockefeller Foundation, a fellowship there at a time when they were launching what's called the Children's Vaccine Initiative, a global initiative that turned out to be the precursor of Gavi. So again, these are the strands that got me where I am now. So it sounds like to some extent you were, based on that experience in Nashville, you know, able to be like a detective, you know, really trying to put the clues together and, and then really see that go from being a mystery to something that could really be tackled and addressed at a global level. Well, that's right. I mean, the Epidemic Intelligence Service is, is referred to as the disease detectives. And it was those kinds of inspirations really that led me to CDC and then really this career in public health with a focus on vaccines. So you mentioned the Children's Health Initiative and the work of Gavi, you know, which was launched in the year 2000. And, you know, there's been quite a bit of focus on vaccines over the last two decades. And over the first part of this century, we saw a lot of progress and a lot of, you know, increase in coverage and availability of those vaccines that had previously only been available in the high income countries made available and really expanded in the lower and middle income countries. Now, you know, over the last year of the pandemic, there's been quite a bit of analysis around the decrease of immunization coverage rates during the, the early months of the pandemic in particular. And I think Sabin was involved in some of those surveys, really trying to determine how exactly the lockdowns that countries just after the declaration of the pandemic in early March, the countries were imposing lockdowns and trying to determine how those lockdowns were affecting families' access to vaccines in different areas. But I want to ask you to look back, you know, to the period, I guess, just right before COVID-19, really, and reflect on the status of routine immunization programs globally. You know, there had been the measles outbreaks in 2018 and 2019. Some of those may have been, I guess, related to lower coverage in some key hotspots. But, you know, coverage rates for several different vaccines had plateaued in a number of different regions. You know, I just want to ask you, you know, before covid what were the issues of greatest concern to you, kind of looking at the status of coverage globally? And what did you see as some of the best opportunities before the pandemic hit for beginning to remedy those challenges and boost coverage overall? It's really an important question, but take a step or two back to sort of give the trajectory of the history. Going back to the creation, frankly, of the EPI program, it's the expanded program of immunization and expanded from smallpox, recognizing that the investments in an infrastructure and architecture to eradicate smallpox could deliver vaccines beyond smallpox. I think that was the capturing that experience and building that into the global architecture was really very important, but it was only moderately successful. Then you have the creation of Gavi, now 20 years old, and it was put in place to really answer some of these questions about access and availability. It was very much a supply side, if you will, program, and it's been remarkable, the progress that Gavi has made in its 20 years. But now look at that more recent history. In 2010, Bill Gates went to Davos and declared the next decade to be the decade of vaccines and put a marker down that basically said, we're doing great, we're making progress, we can do much better, and made that the challenge to the, to the global community with a lot of finances that went with it, but also recognizing that there was a lot to do. Put in place was the Global Vaccine Action Plan. And now reviewing that was really the recognition at the end of that decade, that, as you said, while there had been progress made, there had been plateauing for a number of different reasons. Country commitments, financing, leadership and programs were among those. And I think it was a reminder that we really needed to do better at a time when now we have the next evolution of these strategies at the World Health Organization's the Immunization Agenda 2030, 
Gavi 5.0 as a chance to put that marker down. I think in an interesting way, COVID is going to accelerate some of the things that would otherwise either take a long time or take forever. We're seeing that now. And I think that the development of programs, separate from the development of vaccines, the vaccines are only good if you can deliver them and turn them into vaccinations. So the recognition that programs need to take this on, need to address these challenges of equity, not just global equity, but in a country. When they have limited supply initially, how they're going to distribute that vaccine for maximum impact. And so there's a lot of work that's going on now for delivering the COVID vaccine that I think is going to have benefits for the advancement of many of the other agendas that both Gavi and the World Health Organization have. One, which I think is pretty obvious, is looking at vaccines across the life course. That the, the target of these populations is healthcare worker and older people, given the epidemiology of the disease. And these are immunization programs that are not designed to reach particularly the adults. So I think it's, it's an opportunity for programs to be more resilient and take on a, a role where they're going to see how they can deliver vaccines across their populations. And so when you communicate with your partners in country in the expanded program on immunizations, you know, at the country level or others working with the Ministry of Health, what are their kind of most pressing concerns that you're hearing in terms of getting prepared? I mean, we know that the 92 lower and lower middle income countries are participating, but many of the other countries are self-financing. I think they've rolled out to at least 100 countries at this point. But beyond reaching the adult populations, which you know really is going to require a, a shift on their parts, what are some of the other concerns that you're hearing and how can global partners help prepare for that kind of distribution? Well, Sabin's Advantage, we support a program that used to be called the International Association of Immunization Managers. And that's our reach to the people who are running immunization programs at a national and subnational level. So while we provide resources to them, more important is we get to hear from them. And even more important is we get to have them crosstalk and problem solve among each other. But to your point, in hearing from the community, they're very much concerned about their ability to execute these programs. Again, because they have to find new populations, but there are other needs that they have. They are, for the past several years, have been, been concerned about vaccine hesitancy and their ability to detect it and manage it so it doesn't disrupt their immunization programs. But particularly in the COVID context, the immunization programs have struggled to deliver routine immunizations and campaigns during COVID. They've had to take special precautions to make sure that healthcare workers are protected from infection. It's been difficult for communities to often get to the clinics because of movement restrictions and the like. So they've been challenged by that. But also with the delivery of the COVID vaccine, there's some other things that, again, engaging the healthcare community. The healthcare workers will be the first ones to receive vaccines. So they have to be fully understanding of what these vaccines are and what they aren't. There's some concerns about hesitancy among healthcare workers for the same reasons there's hesitancy across the world because of these are new vaccines against a new disease. We're learning a lot and that needs to be translated to the healthcare workers. But at the same time, need to recognize that there needs to be surge capacity at the local level. Uh, the purpose of vaccinating healthcare workers is to keep them in healthcare settings because of the cascade effects. If they're not able to work, the, the ripple effect it has on health more broadly. So there needs to be training programs to expand the vaccination programs. And another part of that, I think, is the importance of data. So programs are in a position where they know what they're accomplishing. They know where the gaps are. They can make better management decisions. And I think everywhere, when that data is available, it's a chance to examine where there might be glitches, as it would be with managing any program, to then be able to address those challenges and move on. 
So you mentioned vaccine hesitancy as a challenge that some of the immunization program managers, you know, feel that they're facing, particularly as as there's so much unknown about these new vaccines. I know Sabin and the Aspen Institute of Vaccine Science and Policy Program, you know, released a report on vaccine hesitancy. And, and of course, over the past year, you've been part of the CSIS, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, high-level panel on vaccine confidence and misinformation. Now, that was focusing more on the domestic context in the U.S. But we know that, you know, a lot of the rumors and stories, you know, if we break it down to, you know, between access to vaccines and sort of questions and uncertainty about how a new vaccine works. But then, you know, there's this whole other category of rumors and conspiracy theories and and stories about vaccines. We know that those travel along digital platforms and circulate internationally, you know, whether it's through diasporas or trade routes, linguistic and cultural affinities. What do you see as some of the most promising ways to address, you know, those issues around rumors and conspiracy theories and misinformation, in particular in the global context. You know, there's the vaccination demand hub, which, you know, is is trying to gather information and data, as you pointed out, you know, trying to understand some of these issues. But how can the global community come together around some of these issues? Well, from the earliest days, vaccines were subject to these. We've all seen and heard stories about the early days of smallpox vaccinations, when there were a similar set of rumors about safety, about the motivations of the people who are imposing these vaccines. So that's not new. What is new, as you said, in the information age is the explosion of information and rumors going more from whispers over the fence to taking off on global platforms. I think it's uh, several things. Some of the principles are the same as they've been even before the information age of social media is to equip those on on the front lines to understand what those questions are I think in some ways, the rumors are helpful to detect them, to have some understanding of what the the conversation is in the community. So the people who are asked about them, the people who are going to be asked, as they always are, for their trusted advice, know what the issues are and have some ability to address them and know how to address them effectively without actually reinforcing some of those. Also, is the issue of identifying people in the community, in addition to healthcare workers, who are the trusted sources of many things, whether those are religious communities or community-based organizations, They're the ones who are often turned to by sectors of the community, and they need to understand these same issues, which is not simple because sometimes these are complicated scientific questions, but need to be able to understand enough to translate to help people make good decisions. On the spread of misinformation and worse, the spread of disinformation, the intentional spread of wrong information, I think that's where we need to buckle down. As you mentioned, the Save and Asthma report last year took a focus on that. It's interesting that in my previous role in government, we actually had produced, the National Vaccine Advisory Committee in the United States had produced a report on the state of vaccine confidence. At the same time, the World Health Organization had a similar report, which they called vaccine hesitancy. And the recognition that we needed better evidence on what worked and what didn't work, and some of the things I talked about, about how to communicate more effectively. The difference between those early reports and the same report recently is the growth of social media. And that's what's really very different. And I think we're going to have to better understand the flow of that information. You know, I think that we also realize that that immunizations are not the only target of this misinformation, disinformation campaign. So I think we can learn from many others. And for example, there's an initiative called the, the Digital New Deal that's really trying to take a look at these and trying to better understand the flow of information. We need to better understand how public health can not just message better, but compete and make a more level playing field and taking on some of this disinformation. 
So for example, how do we help people understand the motives of some of the people who are promoting this? I think revealing that, revealing either the political or financial motives may help people understand uh, where some of these messages are coming from. The flip side of this, we have to learn what the social media platforms do so well is to steer people towards making decisions. You know, you've seen that pair of shoes float up on every device you have, and sooner or later, you'll buy it. They sort of know how this works. And I think we need to use the digits for good, if you will, and how we can better understand the flow of information to help people make decisions based on the best information. I mean, it sounds like at least a large part of the challenge or you know, one way to address this is really to enable those trusted community members and health workers in particular to understand you know, where some of these stories and messages might be coming from and to you know, be able to talk one-on-one with families when they're coming in to really you know, have that conversation and address people's concerns. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But also not only where they're coming from, but I think an appreciation that the need for public health and again, for other sectors who are being affected to get back in the game. So for example, the Digital New Deal found one network of coordinated pages of health misinformation that had more traffic than WHO and CDC combined. And that was just one network. And so we think we need to better understand that environment to be able to get back and to level the playing field. And I want to switch directions here for a little bit and talk about the United States relationship with Gavi and opportunities for global engagement. So, you know, the U.S. has been a longstanding supporter of Gavi since its inception in 2000, uh, renewed its support for the Gavi 5.0, the work phase from 2021 to 2025 at, I think, a pledge of $1.16 billion over several years, and has now committed to support the advanced market commitment for COVAX uh, for those 92 lower and lower middle income countries with an additional $4 billion, I think, largely for vaccine procurement and distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. But, you know, at the same time, U.S. bilateral programs administered through USAID and and also CDC country offices provide technical assistance to country immunization programs. And some of that, you know, with people being recalled during the pandemic may have slowed a little bit. But, yeah, I just wanted to ask where you see opportunities for greater or better U.S. engagement on global immunization programs as the world, I hope, will emerge out of the COVID crisis. But as we look ahead toward recovery and kind of beyond the acute phase of the pandemic, how can the United States take, you know, the lessons learned from the domestic experience here and the work that the U.S. agencies have been doing for so many years internationally and improve on that and continue to strengthen global programs? I think as we're emerging out of the pandemic, we're also re-emerging into global health, which is a good thing. And I, I think one of the important signals, not only is the support for, for COVAX that you mentioned, but also that now we have a vaccine diplomat in the State Department. Gail Smith's been recently appointed to do that. And I think that signals the efforts to restore U.S. leadership in global immunization. And I think that's a great sign. The vaccine diplomacy portfolio she has, I hope includes not just improving the supply of COVID vaccines to the rest of the world, in addition to the financial support to make these programs go, but to encourage other countries to do similar things. At the same time, not only addressing the supply issues, but also recognizing that there's a demand side of this as well. So I think that some of the same lessons we're learning in communities in the United States are the same things we should be focusing on as we bring not just vaccines, but efforts to improve vaccination in countries around the world. The same things we've talked about before, about the communication efforts, the empowering the healthcare community, 
identifying trusted sources and helping the people on the ground deal with the misinformation and disinformation that their communities may be seeing. We started out looking back before COVID and looking back into the past a little bit. I want to wrap up here by, you know, asking as you look ahead over the next five to 10 years, what are the developments or I guess innovations on the immunization horizon that are most exciting to you? We've got the new mRNA vaccines, and there's certainly been a great deal of research stimulated over the past year or so, if not more. And I would just ask, you know, for people who are starting out their careers in public health, what are the immunization issues you would advise keeping an eye on as they move forward professionally? Are there new things on the horizon or do we need to keep focusing you know, very much on what we've been doing as well? As I mentioned, COVID has been disruptive everywhere to everybody. And I think that's also an advantage because it shakes up the system a little bit and lets you take a fresh look at it. I mentioned before, I think it's an opportunity to accelerate life course immunization as one example, as a byproduct, if you will, of our investments in helping countries deliver co-vaccine to other than childhood immunizations. But there are a range of things, and I would separate them into the vaccine part and the vaccination part. You've mentioned these new platforms. I think that you can probably draw that line back from where we are now to the decade of vaccines and the previous investments to see that what has really blossomed. And I think part of the description or part of the explanation, if you will, of how quickly we can make these vaccines is they've been longer investments and these now platforms were ready for this challenge and we're seeing how well it's working out. The other part of the vaccine side is maybe new delivery approaches. We need to take a look at that last mile and how we can be more efficient and more effective. There's a range of ideas out there and maybe someday we'll get away from the needle and syringe into things that are much easier to deliver for both the system and the recipients. I think there's a lot of work there as well. On the vaccination side, I think we also look at innovation on the vaccination side as well. Not just innovation on the product, but innovation on the programs, how we can be more efficient in the use of data, the use of mapping, and also the opportunities that vaccines across the lifespan have to improve health. There's a lot going on both on the technology side and the program side, and I'm really optimistic that the things that we're doing now are going to help to bring about a new generation of vaccines. But the one that we're looking at now, and I think as we look at the COVID, and particularly as we're watching the variants emerge and the question about what we do with these vaccines, I think it's also a wake-up call of trying to have you know, a similar effort that we did bringing these vaccines available to think how we're going to develop a universal or a variant-proof COVID vaccine. Chasing variants is a losing proposition. It's playing whack-a-mole and there's always another mole. The twin to that is influenza. And for a long time, there's been an effort to try to think that one through. It's a program at Saban to try to accelerate the universal influenza vaccine. So I think that these are the two huge global threats. There may still be a disease X that we haven't seen, but we know that influenza viruses and coronaviruses have the potential to be disruptive globally. And I would hope that the kinds of things we can do now in developing next generation vaccines put these two front and center so that in the future we've got vaccines before we need them and don't have to chase the viruses to try to end the pandemic. Bruce Gellin, thank you for joining me today to discuss global immunization challenges in the context of COVID-19. And good luck to you and your colleagues in the year ahead. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. 
visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.